You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, Jay. Hi, Bob. How are you doing? I am well. How are you? I can't complain. It's getting cold. Starting to feel like winter here. You just complained. Uh, that depends on how I feel about winter. I love winter. I embrace <laughs> no, I do, winter. I do too. I think uh, we noted uh, we're both wearing sweaters. We're ready for sweater weather. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You are Jay Michelson. Um, and you are a, well, you have been a seeker, and we're going to talk about your seeking. Um, you've been on a spiritual path a long time. You've written a book about that that's called Enlightenment by Trial and Error. Subtitle is 10 Years on the Slippery Slopes of Jewish Spirituality, Postmodern Buddhism, and Other Heresies. Uh, you've also written, um, other books, Evolving Dharma. Uh, then a book on sadness and spirituality that I think we actually talked about on this platform, The Gate of we Tears. Did. Is that it? Yep. We did. The the book. You've written a lot of books, and you write a lot. You're prolific. You've uh, you write for the Daily Beast on a regular basis. My new book is called "Why Bob Wright Is True." Why Bob? Thank you for that opportunity to plug my book. Why you're Buddhism welcome. is true. I should say that your your path is uh, somewhat somewhat Buddhist in orientation. It involves a lot of meditation. You're also, uh, but but it goes beyond that. You you uh, draw on your Jewish heritage. Uh, you, you're conversant in Vedanta, which is Eastern, but not Buddhist. Um, and we'll get into all that stuff. You also have a lot of degrees, don't you? Like you have a PhD in. And, and Jewish thought technically, but religious studies. Yeah. And you and I are, I think in a competition for overeducated. No, actually not. All I have is a bachelor's degree and you really? also have. Yeah, that's true. That's you are true. punching above your weight. Uh, I, yeah, I don't know. I'm going to have to examine that metaphor before embracing it. <laughs> but, uh, you, you also have, uh, like a Yale law school degree, right? I do. Yeah. I'm an ex lawyer and a MFA in writing as well, just for the, for the hell of it. And in fact, you write about legal affairs for the daily beast. I do. I was writing about the Supreme court this morning and meditation this afternoon. Wow. Switch hitter. And, and, uh, you, uh, for a while were a, it says in your like bio page, a professional LGBT activist, not an amateur. That's right. Now I'm back to being an amateur, but uh, that just means that was my day job uh, okay. from uh, for almost ten years. Yeah. Okay, so you get more done than I do, I th- I think. Um, and you've also gotten more deeply into meditation than I ever did. You've done like like a three month meditation retreat, silent meditation retreat. I did a two and a three month or back to back. So it was, Mm. uh, it was my Dharma year was 2008, 2009. And, um, but it wasn't out of, um, diligence or it was just what I most wanted to do in the world. I had actually, uh, a relationship had ended, uh, in, uh, in 2007. Mm -hmm. And so I just asked, I was suddenly very free more than I expected to be. And that's what I wanted to do. Wow. So this this uh, book is interesting. It's it's as if one had kept a diary for a long, long time, chronicling one's progress along a spiritual path, and then gone back and selected the highlights so that uh, you know there's a fairly concise summary of uh, of the whole thing, right? Because these are things; these are pieces that were published along the way. 
I think almost entirely, right? Yeah, I started a, a tiny the first ever Jewish online magazine actually in 2002. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these, uh, you know, what it, it grew into was just an opportunity to, we, we would just wanted to publish stuff that wasn't being published anywhere else. And that included what I hoped was, if not philosophically rigorous, at least kind of rigorous in some, in some sense, writing about spiritual practice. And uh, so some of that was by me, some by other people. And then for this book, you know, I, I revisited those pieces, re-edited them, uh, kind of reordered them into something that felt like uh, a logical order. And I did that because I, there were kind of two reasons. I mean, first, this was the book I would have really wanted to read when I was kind of starting out on a serious path of meditation. Um, you know, a lot of these books kind of have answers, but I, I was much more at the time and even now, but really interested in people still asking questions that it seemed like the teachers with the answers had already answered. Um, and then second, I, I always felt that this was my best writing on spirituality and, uh, having written some of the books that you, you know, kindly mentioned at the top, uh, it felt strange. It felt like my best stuff wasn't, you know, was, was not what people knew. So uh, it was really a, a joy to revisit some of this writing. I know that feeling actually. And it's kind of a sad one when you go back and read early stuff and you go, I think I was better then, you know, <laughs> it's like, yeah. that, that would make me over the hill now, wouldn't it? Well, um, there's a freshness in there, right? I'm sure for your, for you as well, that, you know, there are questions that we kind of answer for ourselves, but until we do, those questions are really fresh and alive. And there's a, I think the book is, is joyful in a lot of ways, but there's also kind of a lot of loneliness in the book stuff. I don't feel as much now, you know, married with a child and, and just, I was at a different time in my life. And I think that kind of, that kind of perspective or consciousness is, is actually really valuable. And, and I'm, I'm really thrilled that it's sort of was preserved in the internet Mm -hmm. uh, and then could be repackaged in this way. Okay. The, um, the book has three parts. There are uh, three sections. Uh, you divide your journey in three sections. Um, one thing you say uh, near the beginning is, I feel relatively settled on how I relate to these still fundamental questions of love, God, and the contemplative path. But let's let's save that for the end of the conversation. I don't want to spoil the I don't want to spoil the plot now and find out, uh, you know, exactly what you what you wound up learning. Let's let's um. Let's start back at the beginning. You you say you were not among those, and there are many, many people like this, who were driven to meditation to relieve suffering. Uh, yeah, right. Not on a conscious level, at least, I think. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's funny. One of the things I do now is I work for a meditation app called uh, 10% Happier. Right. And Dan Harris's is, Exactly. Thing. Dan Harris's thing. And, and – um, the overwhelming majority of people who we come in contact with uh, are, you know, coming for reasons of dukkha, of suffering, uh, mm-hmm. just, you know, whether it's stress or anxiety or grief, loss, any of the modern forms of dukkha, you know, there's ambient anxiety among everyone these days. And and um, that may have been true for me on the sub, subconscious level, but consciously I, I went in for very unusual reaches, reasons, which was really mysticism. Um, I had studied mysticism of various forms um, in college and in graduate school in my 20s, but always felt like it was kind of not for me. I mean, that was just something I studied. Um, and at a certain point, due to changes in my life, I really felt like, well, I want to try to have some of these 
experiences and meditation is, is a, a way that people do that. And it's one of the main ways people do that. And, um, so that's what I did. I, I, you know, I went very naively on my first seven day silent meditation retreat thinking I'd have, you know, amazing experiences of the divine or something, not knowing that first I'd have to sit through five days of looking at my own neurosis and, mm-hmm. uh, and self-defeating behavior. Mm-hmm. Do you have a definition of mysticism? Yeah, I, my working definition is just the direct experience of ultimate reality. Um, whatever mm. that means. So for mm. many people, that's theistic. It could be a merging with the divine. For some, it's non-theistic. Uh, but that's, uh. But it's not conceptual. It's experiential. Right. That's the, that's the, what I think one of the things that differentiates it, let's say, from religion or, or something which is Theology. describing ultimate reality. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The, um, so you say you were, uh, I don't know if you put it this way just now, but I, I got sense in the, your book that you were actually looking for the truth. You weren't, you, you didn't like just want to relieve some big anxiety problem. You were looking for the truth. And I, it occurred to me, I wondered like, but you know, if you're so looking for the truth so intensely that you wind up doing things like three month meditation retreats, must, mustn't the, the lack of truth felt pretty damn uncomfortable. You know what I mean? I mean, there's mm, such a mm-hmm, thing. Mm-hmm. I, I guess I'm saying the line between motivation via suffering and motivation, uh, you know, via search for truth is not maybe as clear cut as, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that gets discovered in, in the book, even in the very first, uh, very first chapter or essay, which is called loneliness and faith. Um, and I, that wasn't the first thing I had necessarily had written, but I, I put that first precisely to foreground that point that while on a conscious level, my motivations may have been, uh, sublime experiences or something like that. Yeah, there's a lot of, there was suffering underneath that. And I don't think anyone really gets into the spiritual path without some impetus of suffering, whatever that is, whether it's loss or a lot of, a lot of it in my case was being, uh, in the closet, a closeted gay man for my, for my twenties and being not accepting of myself and, and to put it mildly and, um, and the loneliness that that, that comes with that. Um, but I think very quickly, there's a, there's a quote that I actually just put up on my Instagram that, uh, I forget the author. Helen Shukman is the author and she said, the task is not to find love, but to look inside at the obstacles that we place in love's way. Hmm. Um, I got, I missed the exact words, but the, the, that's the idea that, you know, there's, there's something that's blocking us all the time. Hmm. All of us as human beings. It's not just one or two people, but all, all, however many billion of us. And so very quickly, the search for whether it's love or God or experience or truth um, turns inward mm-hmm. at, at what it is that blocks us from that. So where'd you do that seven day retreat that was your first big thing? I, I did my first retreat was called a Jewish meditation retreat, but it was really Vipassana, uh, Buddhist med- Buddhist style meditation in a Jewish mm-hmm. container. I now actually teach that retreat. The same retreat mm-hmm. is still is still going on. Where Where, and, where uh, is it? Where's the place? It's uh, now held in um, uh, Falls Village, Connecticut, which is near Great mm. Barrington and the Berkshires mm. at a Jewish retreat center. Since it is a sort of Jewish retreat, we do it the week of Christmas, which Match. is a very convenient time to run a Jewish retreat. Yeah. And we do serve Chinese food on uh, on the 24th. As, as is customary. As, as we must, yeah. And um, this was uh, – that was the summer of 2002 uh, for me was that first retreat. And uh, it really was life-changing. It, it was um, – 
it took me a long time to untangle the different threads. The the way in, in which Judaism and, and the Dharma were woven together wasn't quite weren't quite clear to me at the time. Now I feel very clear mm-hmm. about it. Um, the also the ways in which what we've just been talking about, uh, looking at suffering and looking at profound uh, transformative experience, uh, those were also interwoven in ways mm-hmm. that took me a while to kind of untangle for myself mm-hmm. and that's not to criticize the teachers i mean it's my journey it was my it was my own set of confusions um so uh, yeah i went on that first retreat um not yeah. even really understanding what a silent retreat was i thought we were going to do a lot of silent meditation retreat i, I didn't know we actually weren't going to talk <laughs> oh yeah that is i'm afraid what silent means <laughs> the, uh, so uh so you said vipassana we should for people who aren't conversant in this stuff that that's kind of they can kind of think loosely speaking of mindfulness uh when they hear the word vipassana it literally means something more like insight um so you said for f- five days were held but then did amazing things happen or they did uh and um yeah i i, I don't I don't mind talking about it. Yeah, I think amazing things did happen. Uh, It really, I did have to kind of go through, it was a pretty rough few days and that process has repeated. It's not like however many 20 or 30 retreats that I've done since then. Now I just enter on day five. You know, you always enter with what you're bringing with you. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, a lot of this kind of meditation is just about seeing clearly whatever's, whatever's up, whatever's happening. And that's usually not just sweetness and light because there's, there's, I forget, but there was some, Indian prince who said that suffering is kind of part, woven into the nature of, of life. Uh, and so I've heard, heard of him. The name, I, the name escapes me. Right. There's a statue of him just over my, yeah. over my shoulder here. Um, so that's what we come with uh, every time, but it was true. You know, I think when I look back now with uh, 15 or you know, 18 years of, of practice experience, it, you know, a lot of it is just about preparing the mind. The mind gets concentrated and gets more quiet. And then um, the everyday beauty of life appears um, and it appears quite luminous. Um, at the time, those experiences really knocked my socks off. It felt like the fulfillment mm-hmm. of a, a wish I didn't know I had for, you know, for 10 or 15 years. Mm-hmm. And um it seemed to conform so much to what I had read. Remember, I you know, other than a little bit of psychedelics in my 20s, I hadn't had these experiences, but I had read a lot about them. Um, and so I, I was kind of a book mystic before I was a, an actual mystic, an armchair mystic. Um, and so it just felt, it felt like I'd received the answer key to religion. Like, well, of course, this is what the whole, you know, holiness is, and this is what the sacred is. And this is, and, um, since then, I, I've noticed that I have some experiences that other people have, and they don't have those that interpretation of it. You know, it could just be joy or um, uh, equanimity or contentment or something like that. Um, but the way I'm wired, I just seem to – it's not even a layering on top. It doesn't feel like an interpretation. The, the quality of the experience has to do with the numinous and the sacred. But I have noticed that not everyone feels that way. Well, do you think that has to do with your having had an upbringing that was in some sense religious? I think so. I actually, I think it's really just me being a weirdo and uh, I'm not the only weirdo. There's, you know, millions of us around the world. I think some people are just kind of, some of us are sort of wired that way. You know, there are plenty of folks raised in religious traditions who don't have any appetite for the sacred. And then there are plenty of people who are raised without a religious background, but who do have that. Uh, And, you know, some, I think this is a line in the book that some people like golf and I like mysticism. Um, and that actually, you know, that and line some people is, like both. 
Right, exactly. It doesn't have to be either or. It's good to get out of dualistic thinking. That actually, you know, that line was kind of an important one for me because a lot of times, and I wonder if you've encountered this in the contemplative world, there's a little bit of a grasping on to like this this activity is somehow more acti- more beneficial than everything else like this is the best thing that we can be doing with our time is spiritual practice in whatever tradition and i do think it's better than others i mean i i have nothing against golf but certainly you know the pro- meditation over a period of years has a way of changing the mind in a way that most leisure activities don't but but it's usually richer than that. I found this almost spiritual elitism among a lot of folks like, oh, this is – and then there's competition for whose method is better. But even without that, I found it really helpful to just cop to this being what I want to do. And it just feels essential to me. It feels like one of the things that makes life worth living. And um, and I'm an enthusiast. I don't know if you're an Enneagram person. I'm an Enneagram seven, which means I want to do everything and have every possible experience. So the idea that here is one of these potentially tr- most powerful transformative ways of being in the world, like I definitely want to try some of that. Okay, so maybe you should put a finer point on the difference between the way you feel about this and look at it and name it and the way other people do. So you said some people might just say it gave me great equanimity. It gave gave me joy. I saw more beauty. Things like that. I mean, was was it was the deal with you that you felt like this is the truth? Is that yeah? And and but theistically as well. Early on, when I was mm-hmm. still more in the in the Jewish frame, I mean, this felt divine, or if not divine, at least holy or sacred. Um, but I felt like that way. I felt that way as a kid. You know, I remember being 12, 13, 14 years old and walking around at summer camp, uh, leaving leaving all the kids and going off and walking in the woods and feeling a sense of uh, sort of words worthy and sublimity. I did not have the language for of words worthy and sublimity at the time mm-hmm. when I was 12, but you know, there was a sense of connectedness with nature. There was a sense of um, it was, it was beauty, but beauty in a sort of religious sense of beauty. And so even before I had language for, for that or any particular, that uh, it just seems to be how I process stuff. And that's true now too. I, I mean, I, again, I, I mentioned psychedelics once before. I'm, I'm still working with a couple of medicines and often I'll have experiences which are to me, obviously mystical union with the divine and someone else will have the same experience with the same medicine and just say, well, that was really beautiful and great. <laughs> when you, when you use the word medicine, you're talking about psychedelics or? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But what you said, it's not right. You know, I think, the word drugs has a lot of connotation and it's, right. you know, nowadays I don't, I don't party with those uh, substances anymore. Cause you know, we all grow older, but uh, so it's more in a, in a spiritual container, whether with a, in a shamanic kind of context uh, or some other therapeutic context yeah. or something like that. Now this is a kind of a, well, this is maybe a departure from a strict, strictly chronological journey through your I knew we journey, were going to be able to, I knew we couldn't get to But you did the, no there's an interesting thing about ayahuasca in your uh in your book I forget which section it's in but I wasn't aware having not done ayahuasca or DMT which is kind of a derivative of it I guess there's close yep. close chemical relative um I wasn't aware that whereas the regular psychedelics tend, although everyone's experience is different with these things, but tend to be unitive. In other words, they're conducive to the idea that, oh, all is one or, uh, or these two different things I'm thinking about are actually one. You know, Steve Jobs' big motivating epiphany was like technology and the liberal arts. 
they belong together. They are, you know, I will unite them. I still don't know what the hell he was talking about. He just wound up <laughs> making a computer and his phone and making a ton of money. But, uh, but, but it worked for him as a motivation. In any event, there is this, there is a unit of, uh, tendency. And of course, uh, the, a, a lot of people think of the classic mystical experience as being a unitive one, as you note, and, you know, uh, non-dual, the, the bounds of the self dissolve. I am part of everything. Everything is part of me and so on. But, what I didn't realize is you note that um, ayahuasca is very different and DMT is very, very different. Do you want to? Um... Yeah, I, I, sure. I mean, I, it's funny. I, I threw that one in there, that particular essay in at the end because there was no other, there wasn't any other writing of mine on that subject that was on psychedelics or in medicine work. Yeah. I mean, the, what that, that essay engages with just what you mentioned that, you know, when we, when we look as a scholar at the history of mysticisms, um, you know, inevitably there's going to be some kind of either confirmation bias or just we're looking for certain patterns. And that's one reason that the comparative enterprise is so fraught. Um, if you're looking for two traditions that both use the color blue, you'll find that, but you might not notice that one other tradition uses the color green and yellow much more, but it, because you're looking for blue, you find blue. And now you write a book about how blue is the, is the uh, perennial philosophy and, and is the sacred color in every tradition, which by the way, it is the sacred color in Kabbalah, but, uh, but not we will in every get, I want to get to Kabbalah. Um, so likewise here, you know, I think a lot of the, a lot of the writers on mysticism, certainly in the sixties and seventies were influenced um, by psychedelics and by either their own experiences or others. Uh, and so there was a privileging of certain kinds of an otherworldly or non-typical experience. And, but if you look in the history, so again, at Jewish mysticism is what I know best. There are whole schools of Jewish mysticism that are non-unitive. Uh, so actually some of the earliest ones from the second to eighth century of the common era, um, visions of divine chariots and angels. You see mm -hmm. a lot of that on ayahuasca, DMT, and other, the tryptamines, these other uh, class of, of, mm -hmm. uh, molecules. Um, some people have unitive experiences, the experience of 5-MeO-DMT, which is the toad medicine. Right, that, to that's DMT, apparently guaranteed to bring ego dissolution, right? <laughs> In my experience, I can guarantee that, yeah. That's amazing. I've heard that, that it's almost guaranteed to bring ego death. Well, unless you fight it, in which case it's going to bring you to a hell realm for your 20 minutes. Oh, is, so, so, so would you say the people who say they've had negative experiences and there are a few, in fact, I talked to Michael Pollan on this show about his book, How to mm -hmm. Change Your Mind. And I think he had a negative, I, as I recall, he had a negative experience, but there was, <clears throat> there was, uh, ego death, if I'm remembering correctly. But yeah, I mean, I, you know, even just the phrase ego death, if I went in with that phrase, that might conjure up a lot of fear, which it's is kind of a, it's kind experience. of a negative phrase. Yeah, yes. I mean, how about melting into the great lattice of being? Uh, I'll have some of that. <laughs> yeah, it's harder and, to remember, though. Yeah, I guess that's true. It's not as catchy. Uh, no, I've you know I've been in those ceremonies many times, and and occasionally people really try to hold on. And I, I don't remember which psychedelic pioneer might have been Terence McKenna said the the only bad trip is fighting the trip you're on. Um, and that I think that's right. I mean, you have to. Unlike spiritual practice like meditation and so forth, in most cases, you really can't stop the process of how, you know, you really do just dive into the deep end uh, with mm -hmm. these medicines and you can't try to get out of the water. I don't know. I'm thinking of the wrong metaphor here, but like you, you can't, you have to, you know, you actually not even, you can't even swim. You just have to sink mm -hmm. uh, and allow that to happen. And, and, you know, I, I've had experiences where I didn't 
let that happen, and they were pretty negative experiences. Um, a lot of people also don't remember the, the peak, uh, particularly of the of the five meo experience, uh, because there is kind of no ego there at that moment, and so you, you know, you're not really there. So it, it's hard to, you know, it, it takes some practice and uh, to kind of. So you mean they literally remember. don't recollect that part. Yeah, and because there's know, no them to if recollect. If it's done in it. circle, there's there's twelve of us or something sitting around a circle. Like they've clearly had some dissociative experience, mm-hmm. but then they kind of snap out of it, and and it's as if it didn't happen. Well, then how do you um, ever know you've had it? Sometimes you do remember. <laughs> sometimes you do. It's just or you ironic remember when you just do. kind of going in, or you remember just coming out, or you know, I, I several times I would have the intention after my first few uh, ceremonies, having the intention to try to like remember and recollect, so that in daily life, I mean, I think one of the uses of this kind of medicine is to the the negative the drug term is flashback, like to have an, an unwanted mm-hmm. flashback, let's say to an LSD trip, but. A positive way of thinking about that is like recollecting that way of being, that unitive moment. Um, and so that became a practice of mine. This is more recent. It's not in the book um, of just trying to, you know, like the Dzogchen Buddhist teachers say, small moments many times. So there's the small moment many time of settling back into what the Dzogchen people call primordial awareness or Rigpa. There's also could be a small moment of settling back to the sense of unity that was glimpsed on a, in a medicine ceremony. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found both of those to be very, very helpful, um, both in the midst of difficult situations, but also for the positive. Um, just, you know, I could be sitting on my sofa and decide to, oh, yeah, let's taste into what the mind, it's almost like the mind remembers almost like a posture that it had or how it, how it was disposed in a particular moment. Um, that's also, and that, that can be, Incredibly powerful. That's also last thing on this, my, um, unless you have more questions. That's also my, my practice around the jhanas, the Buddhist absorptive states. Which now so I, jhanas now I are these, are these levels of, it's, I mean, is degrees of bliss a, a two, is overly simple way of putting it? I mean, I mean, the, the higher level jhanas are pretty damn nice, apparently. They're pretty awesome. I don't yeah, know they're, from, they're pretty great. Um, it's interesting. The bliss kind of drops out. There's four main ones and then four additional ones. So eight total. The bliss kind of drops out after number three. And then it's just this really crystalline equanimity. Um, so, so, so is this, I mean, this is interesting to me. Uh, so I assume this is something that in your kind of three month, five month, during that part of your journey, you were getting into these jhanas uh, and um, the, it's interesting. I, I mean, the idea that there really are these distinct levels and you can say how, how you felt and somebody can say, Oh, that's number three. Um, you know, it sounds a little suspicious, right? I mean, I, I mean, it just sounds a little too formal to actually apply to, to be able to encompass a lot of different human beings, right? But it, are you, does, are you a, a believer, so to speak, in, 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 in these kind of clear gradations of jhana-ness? Well, let's see. I, I guess the re- I, let me reframe that question because I think I still hold it as a question. I don't I don't have an answer, but I would reframe. The, I've definitely had exactly that experience. I've had the Jonic experiences that are as classically described in texts from 2,500 years ago. So the only question, or the question for me, is is it a self fulfilling prophecy or, or mm, not? So yeah. if you're working with a teacher who says, "Yeah, focus on that bliss that's coming up," then you're going to do that, and then lo and behold, you enter a bliss state. Um, 
you know, for me, I think it's probably some of each. I think mm-hmm. it does seem like these are kind of ways the mind sort of, it's just like places the mind settle into. Um, but you can think about it in a mundane way. I mean, if we, mm-hmm. uh, let's go back to golf. So if you're, do you actually play golf? You know, uh, you're, kind uh, of. <laughs> so yeah, badly maybe, or I don't uh, <laughs> Yeah, increasingly because I play more and more rarely. And at the same time, I'm getting older. Yes. So there, so, you know, there are certain feelings that you have as you play golf or tennis or whatever, you know, and so it might be, um, there's, you get in the zone. People have that experience. Is I the actually zone don't the same do that, but go ahead. State? Yeah. <laughs> Is the flow state exactly the same for everyone? Probably not, but it's similar enough that people can write books about the flow state. Um, or you could just have a pleasant contentment that arises as you're walking along and, you know, shooting 18 over par or whatever. And, uh, it could that would just be a be, good day. That would be a good day. Could, for me. It could be the pleasure of company, uh, or the pleasure of a good day or solitude for that matter. Mm. And these are things which, other people also feel and you could read nice essays or write nice essays about them. So I don't think these are different. I think these are just common experiences that if you go along and do a certain practice, whether it's golf or jhana meditation, mm-hmm. uh, you're going to have these experiences. Um, can I, I interrupt? With- can you tell me, is this at all jhana? Like uh, on one meditation retreat, I don't, I don't generally go like looking for bliss on meditation retreats, but there was one where somebody had told me that, uh, sometimes by manipulating your eyes, you could do something. I, I did get to a point, like probably day five or day six by where I forget if it was like moving my eyes up. I mean, my eyes were closed, but moving my eyes up or something would like let in more bliss. And, okay. yeah. and it, it was, but the interesting thing to me was it would get to a point where I'd go like, whoa, that's enough. Does that make uh, sense? Yeah, so you're not a good candidate for heavy psychedelic <laughs> Oh, is <laughs> yeah, that right? Cause if, well, because you want to, in jhana or in any of that, in concentration practice, which is what you're doing there, uh, or cultivation, cultivating states, when the mind says enough, you can say, okay, enough, and just settle back. Um, that's the advantage, one of the many advantages of working without medicine is that there's that ability to kind of regulate, you know, the intensity. Oh, oh of the you, so you're saying that's not available to you if you, well, uh, if you, if you yeah. did a drink, you know, if you took a lot of uh, a, a decent dose of 5-MeO-DMT, you would not be able to say that's enough. Yeah. Um, and in fact, saying that's enough might would bring up resistance up. and could kind yeah. of suck for a little while. Okay. Um, so, so that's, sorry, that's, I interrupted yeah. you. No, go, no, no, go I ahead. think that's fine. Yeah. I think, you know, one teacher, Inside, in a tiny, tiny universe of people who care about this particular kind of meditation, jhana meditation, there's a raging debate as to how intense the state has to be in order for it to count. Mm -hmm. So if you have any thoughts of the ego or the self, does that mean you're not yet it? It's not yet in? Or could it be a little bit? And my view and the view of my teacher, uh, Lee Brasington, is that uh, this is from uh, Ajahn Chah, who is a Thai Buddhist master. Mm -hmm. He said that the jhanas are like four pools in the forest. And the pools can be shallow or deep, but they're the same four pools. So, you know, there's these four locations where the pools are and the four jhanas, uh, four lower jhanas. And that seems right to me. So they could be more or less intense. Um, and what you experienced on your retreat could be as just less intense version of the first jhana. And we could spend the rest of the time just talking about that because there's ways to kind of diagnose here's what's happening. And, oh, I see mm-hmm. this is arising and this mental faculty is arising. And that can be really helpful. You know, the point of these states is not to just get high. Um, it's it, There are really, I think, maybe three main points just really briefly. One is it's hard to get into them. So you'd have to do a lot of what the Buddhists call purification of mind. So the process to get in is very helpful. 
The second, they're so blissful and empowering that they can really power your practice. They're like really, really good rests and you come out with enthusiasm and bliss and it makes sitting eight hours a day in meditation much more bearable. Uh, mm-hmm. which is why I think the Buddha recommended it. And third, finally, when you come out of these states, right as you're coming out. So you're really just the, the process of insight meditation, of noticing things non-judgmentally and noticing impermanence and noticing other things like that, just is so easy. The metaphor I've used for people is it's like bicycling downhill instead of uphill. You just coast on down mm-hmm. and the mind is so clear and quiet and sharp. And that you can really measure. I don't know if that counts as objective, but you can certainly in your own experience see, you know, that the mind just notices things much more effectively because it's been so quieted and so settled in jhana. So mm-hmm. that's why the, you know, those three reasons are sort of for me, the main benefits of this kind of practice. Um, and I'm, I'm not ashamed of number two, which is that the states are so sublime that they really do have a, an impact. Um, that's not the point. It's not meant to be the dead end, but it's part of what powers practice along. Okay. Now does this belong in phase one of your journey? The, uh, your experimentation with jhanas? I would say phase three, if I had to pick a phase. Okay. (laughs) I think phase um, one was having these states a little more like what you just described, mm -hmm. having these states arise and not really having a language or a system to understand what's happening. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a uh, second or third piece in the book is sort of actually has a little bit, you mentioned at the beginning, it's like having a diary, actually has a tiny bit of diary entries while I was on retreat and not supposed to be writing. Um, And you can, at least I, when I look at that writing, you can see the altered state in the writing and it's a beautiful altered state. It's not like a hallucination. How is the writing different? There's a certain softness that's Mm -hmm. in there that is just, um, yeah, the, the, the faculties of doubt, which is what that essay is really about is how doubt kind of comes back in, you know, at some of the, some of that peak stage, there's sort of a, a certainty that the doubt is wrong. Um, that no, this is, this is definitely not a, a hallucination. This mm-hmm. is, this is the mind, you know, on uh, acting really well. So this yeah. is not the mind impaired or diluted, but this is the mind refined. Um, and that certainty disappears. That sense of certainty passes. Um, and so it's a certainty, but it's a very soft certainty. I'm not sure if that, if that sounds almost like a contradiction. Certainty is usually very firm, but there's, I guess the word would be confidence. There's like a real confidence in, in that peak, in writing in the peak experience. Um, but at, even at that time, I didn't have the answer. I didn't have a system. I didn't have a way of comprehending or understanding what was happening. That's what makes, I think, the, that essay, that particular one, maybe of interest or of value to some people, that here's a mind trying to figure out what's going on, mm-hmm. um, that here's this powerful altered state that seems much more clear than regular consciousness, um, that's much more filled with love and compassion than mm-hmm. ordinary consciousness, and what's going on. Now, it is an amazing feeling. I mean, you remember at the end of my first retreat that, um, I mean, everything is more beautiful than usual. You're less judgmental toward people and more inclined to see the beauty in them. Um, And there's a conviction that this is a truer view of the world. And it's a conviction I'm willing to defend. I mean, you know, uh, in an argumentative way. I mean, I mean, I think there are reasons and and I've done that. I think there are reasons to believe it's a clearer view 
of the world. And that's the amazing thing is, is the, 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 the promise, you know, I mean, it's an amazing thing about the claim of Buddhism is that the reason you're suffering and making other people suffer is because you're not seeing the world clearly. You know, it's great, great to be able to solve all these problems at once. Well, that's, I mean, I know, we're, I know we're ostensibly talking about my book, but that is one of the things I loved about the framing of, of why Buddhism is true. First of all, from the title on down, and I know you and I talked about the title and questions about the title, but yeah. I love, I love the combination of argumentativeness and compassion. Like you're sort of a, a fiercely argumentative advocate for more wisdom, compassion, and love. And that's, a, I love that combination because that's a space that I inhabit all the time. And it has been fun. Your books come up in conversations with others and I'll be like, Oh yeah, he did this first. He did this thing on God. And now he wrote this book on, uh, you know, why Buddhism is true. It's like, why Buddhism is true. And it, it sort yeah. of offends people. And I think that's a really productive offense. <laughs> like it then leads to a really good com. Good, kind of conversation because I think what you just said a second ago is one of the kind of arguments of the book. It's like, yeah, here's a way to see more clearly. Is it true that this is seeing more clearly or is it actually delusion? Well, here's some reasons why it actually does look like this that's is, seeing more clearly. Like it's the, more true. This is my belief. Uh, the, the, uh, so let's, um, let's get a little more into the background you entered all of this with at one point in the book, you say that one thing that happens in the course of your journey is that in some sense, you lose your religion. Yeah. So describe the religion you lost. Uh, when I was, this is not what I was raised with, but when I was about 20, I fell in love with the Jewish path of observance. The Hebrew word is, is halakha, which literally means like the way to go. It's very similar to the word, the Dharma, um, that this is the path. And that mm-hmm. path involves uh, ritual observance, ethical observance. It's a lot of law. So you actually. were not brought up observant? I was brought up middle of the road conservative. So we were sort of observant, but not the way I was in my 20s. So so yeah. how, in what ways, what, what's the difference? What were you doing in your 20s that you hadn't been doing? Uh, let's see. In my teens, we would go to a normal restaurant and eat spaghetti, but not eat the meatballs. <laughs> and then in my 20s, I'd go to a normal restaurant and I wouldn't eat the spaghetti. I'd only have a salad. that's a very jewish answer to that question that really is it's not a christian answer i know No, it's really not it's a legalistic and that's the if there if there's a beauty to the path that is the beauty of the path speaking of of jewish answers there's two things that a few people have said to me and they were all jewish (laughs) one of them is like bob you don't understand religion's not about belief okay and, and I'm like, say, yeah. I'm like, speak for yourself. I mean, everyone I, you know, where I come from, religion is totally about believe. The other, the other thing is uh, a couple of people have said, when I've said, are you spiritual, but not religious? They said, no, I'm religious, but not spiritual. Both very, very Jewish things. So yeah, my first, so, one of my, the, the rabbis who first had an impact on me, Rabbi Michael Paley, uh, who said to be a good Jew, you have to believe in one God or fewer. <laughs> And I think that's definitely right. It, you know, there's that old saw that Judaism is a religion of deed, not creed. Mm-hmm. And eh, it's not 100% true, but there's a lot of truth to that. Mm-hmm. There really is. And certainly when I was living that lifestyle in the, the first half of my 20s, let's say to age 22 to 26, 27, I would definitely have said I was 
religious but not spiritual. Um, and there's a whole philosophy of that, of how uh, the sort of translation of spirituality into daily life is through legalistic religious observance. Um, so there's a famous passage that I discuss in the book. There's one of the books that is the sort of the, the best representation of this worldview is called Halachic Man uh, by Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik. And he was very much invested in that view that this or that worldview as opposed to a more traditional spirituality, which was you should sense the beauty in everything. And there's a passage in the book that I quote where he talks about the sunset and the sort of general spiritual, or you could say romantic vision of the sunset is the beautiful, the beautiful colors. And you're moved to reflect on the grandeur of God. If that's part of your worldview, we're just at the beauty of nature. And for uh, for halachic man, the person who follows this path, the actually what's beautiful about the sunset is now I have different obligations. Now it's time for the evening prayer, not the afternoon prayer. If it's a holiday, now the holiday has begun. And I came to f- totally reject that view, but that was my sort of guiding way of thinking for almost 10 years. And so when you ask, what's the religion I lost? I lost that. that. Um, and the cover of the book uh, has a, a loaf of challah on it, you know, the Jewish bread for, for uh, Sabbath. And um, that's actually derived from an essay in the book called Fresh Baked Bread, which is about the experience, as uh, Stephen said, not ideas about the thing, but the thing itself. Um, for in a Jewish in a Jewish observance or uh, legal observance, the significance of that bread is the blessing that you make over it the fact that you're required to eat it at a certain time. It signifies the Shabbat. And I'm, I don't want to put this down, this worldview down. It's, it's, it, you know, it animates the lives of, of a couple of million people. Um, and it, it meant a lot to me uh, for a long time, but I really came to reject it and value the bread as the experience of fresh baked bread and how you can be, mindful in that experience or you could have delight in that experience and just the very simple um, experience of it. There was a writer who, uh, his name I'm forgetting, who said that Zen is the unsymbolization of the world. Hmm. And that, that I, that's a valuable line for me. And so, and this happened through your meditative practice, this. Yeah, this it thing. really eroded, you know, a, another piece that's in the book was, um, coming to get to a place where that sense of groundedness and connectedness that many people get through religion, I felt like I could just have generated without any of the myth or the, or the observance or the the creed or the faith Mm -hmm. just in meditation. And that I I feel, I felt like was even more important because Mm -hmm. for me, it's that sense of groundedness and security that drives so many people to nationalism or to you know, let's say fundamentalist religion, conservative religion, that here's a, something that's true. Like here's something that's certain. Here's my group is where I derive my meaning for, or my myths or my beliefs, my faith or my God. And it feels like that's kind of a dangerous idea right now, or an idea at least that causes a lot of suffering, let's say. Mm-hmm. And so for me, setting that aside was, was a, a huge piece, but I have to say it's still, you know, even today, you know, if, if, uh, an observance I don't do, let's say, keep say the idea of food, because Jews talk about food all the time. You know, if there's something not kosher food that's brought into the house, there is that intuitive, instinctual, like, Mary Douglas purity and danger recoiling, like, impure, not okay. 
And, you know, I just sit with that for now. It takes about three seconds for that to subside. <laughs> so it's not a long, but there, if I'm looking, if I'm noticing, if I'm paying attention, that recoiling, which is totally irrational, also can be really harmful um, to self and others. It's still in there. And, and that's really interesting, I guess, to see that that's still there. So I've like kind of deliberately worked on just sitting with that and not listening to that voice that recoils because that's the same voice that recoils against gay people or if or against muslims or against whatever anything that's perceived as other um and it may not you know to use food examples is to trivialize it right because it's kind of ridiculous to feel that way about a cheeseburger but i can guarantee you that i have felt that way about a cheeseburger and um it's it's fascinating to see this reptilian brain be captured by religious dogma, even years after setting aside that dogma. So when you lost your religion, though, you did not lose belief in God, which is what most Christians would mean by losing their religion. Well, I, I you know, I, I gained a lot more skepticism about what we say when we what we're really saying when we say believe in God or experience of God. So even that, you know, as you know, from my other work from non-dual Judaism, my I would say most, I would definitely say what 75% of Christians would say I'm an atheist <laughs> if it's uh, God does not exist, but God is existence itself. So my theology is already, uh, wouldn't pass muster, I guess, among some. So you're but kind of a, then, a kind of a pantheist? Yeah, ish. But now it's even the Buddhism has really scoured even that. It's kind of, there are definitely experiences of the sacred. There's non-rational experiences that involve a, a sense of personhood to the to the cosmos that I can't really explain. And um, so I'm just in a sort of agnostic, I don't know, place around mm-hmm. those experiences, despite having had pretty intense experiences, you know, uh, as we talked about before. So I would actually say that even, I don't know what, you know, or there's an early essay in the book uh, titled, Am I Religious? Question mark. Um, even now, I don't know if, I, I, it depends who's asking. You know, do I believe in God? I mean, it depends what we mean by believe in God. Probably what we mean by the word in also, although I'm not sure about that one. <laughs> um, do I have a, a, a belief in an anthropomorphic creator deity who, you know, founded the earth in seven days? I don't have that belief. Or even a sort of more liberal version of that where, you know, there's sort of the force for God as the force for good in, in the world, I guess. I don't, I don't really know about that. Uh, I guess I definitely have a experience of the sacred. And so whether that's connected to a God figure or not feels kind of secondary, but it does, you know, it does differentiate me from being a pure Western Buddhist. Um, you know, most Buddhists of, of Asian descent had devotional elements and religious oh, elements yeah. and supernatural elements in their practice. And it's only plenty, this plenty very, gods. Yeah. yeah, it's only this very weird little Western offshoot that sort of is really as, as non-theistic as some people like to say. Yeah. Um, and I'm not in that. I'm not in that kind of secular space, secularism. Um, there's still a love of of, of the sacred, and mm-hmm. that's definitely still true for me today, even though I don't have any theology or, or myth to explain it. Okay. So talk about some of your um, some deep meditative experiences you've had that went beyond bliss, or or weren't weren't just about bliss, but had to do, I don't know, were more metaphysical or non-dual or something well one one way that the theravadan buddhist tradition that i have practiced in defines enlightenment 
uh, is the intuitive knowing of the four noble truths. Um, so the four noble truths really quickly, uh, you know, that there is suffering, mm-hmm. uh, that suffering is caused by clinging on to stuff. Like we really want the good stuff and really don't want the bad stuff. Um, that it is possible to, to interrupt that. It is possible to cling less and here's a way to do it. That's the fourth noble truth. Here's the, the way to do that. Um, you know, for me, the key there is intuitive. Um, it's not just an intellectual knowledge and that's where the work comes in. So that's where seeing over and over and over and over again, the way that we cling from moment to moment, clinging to the next breath, clinging to sense desire, wanting more, more food, I'm back on the food, um, or whatever it is, sex, fame, success, recognition, love, power, money, whatever. Um, and just seeing that moment to moment again and again and again and again. And on one of my longer retreats, I really had the sense that I was just babysitting my mind while it figured this out. Like there wasn't anything my rational brain had left to do. Like I get, I get it. <laughs> I get it. Yeah, yeah. I get impermanence. I get, I even get non-self, but I certainly get the dukkha part, the suffering part. I get it. But what does that mean? Get it. You know, so I think for me, some of the more transformative experiences have been from, getting it intuitively um, where the brain, maybe we don't really know that yet, but certainly the mind kind of readjusts or recalibrates. It just learns the hard way because there's no other way so far to do it that enduring happiness, like real happiness is not going to come from out here from the stuff that I can either grab or push away that it's impossible to arrange the conditions uh, in the world for my happiness, that it comes from a kind of settling back from Mm -hmm. that and clinging less. And so that, in a way, maybe that sounds less profound than like the altered state stuff, but that's more profound because when there's that intuitive knowledge, the mind has actually shifted. Yeah, and it, one reason it's profound is because the idea is that not only can uh, this liberate you from suffering in principle, it, it, it also cuts through all the stuff that is clouding your vision. Uh, but, mm-hmm. but because, you know, when you look at the things that, I mean, just look at like what's called the psychology of tribalism, you know, and, and the way that blurs your view of the goodness of your group, your in group and the badness of the out group. I mean, all of that, all of those distortions boil down to like wanting something, wanting, you know, wanting to believe this, wanting to believe that. Um, and, I, I really do believe it's all one piece. And, and um, mm-hmm. so it's not a trivial thing and it's not just therapeutic. No, I think that's right. And, and I don't want to downplay the therapeutic piece, especially again, a 10% happier, you know, this is my choice to work with people who are really new to all this stuff. So we've been talking at Dan Harris uses this phrase, like the deep end of the pool and the shallow end of the pool. We've had an, a lovely deep end conversation, but also there's so much suffering at the shallow end of the pool. Mm-hmm. I think it's remarkable that both on, you know, five month silent meditation retreats and in 15 minutes listening to an app on your iPhone, there is this, a similar benefit adheres, obviously different in degree, yeah. but not necessarily different in kind, you know? No, if get, you calm down a little, you can probably see things a little A little clearly. bit better. And that's what I love. That's Dan's genius of that title, about 10% happier. Like, mm-hmm. could you really get 100% happier? Let's not worry about that. <laughs> could you get 10% happier? Yeah. Is it worth a, a fair amount of effort to get that? 
probably is. So I love, you know, I think that was, that was a stroke of genius that, it, you know, he titled his book that and now the app is titled that. But that's why, you know, when you asked, you know, tell me about some of your the best meditation experiences, it just sounds like 10% happier on square, you know, squared. So 100% mm-hmm. happier um, because it's the mind learning intuitively. And, mm-hmm. you know, in the Theravada tradition, there's all kinds of maps and charts about what happens when that happens and, mm-hmm. and, and Nibbana and, and Nirvana, all the rest. So, but that's, that's as good as it gets. Okay. So to get back to the deep end of the pool, the, uh, you know, if, if it's not only a, you know, a hundred percent happy, but a hundred percent clear in vision, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. that's when you, we sometimes start using words like enlightenment and you, you talk in the book about what enlightenment means. There's an essay on like Jewish enlightenment, um, what is your, I've always, I have a pretty strict old school view of enlightenment, sufficiently strict that I suspect there aren't any enlightened people or at least very few, you know, but, um, uh, I, I mean, I think, uh, well, anyway, uh, maybe, uh, maybe I shouldn't be, be that judgmental and skeptical, but, it, but it's a pretty strict view. What is your you 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 fool around with different views of enlightenment. I guess it's fair to say, right? <laughs> I, I want to use. Can I use that as the blurb for the book? Yeah, Jay fools around yeah, with different views yeah. of enlightenment. Uh, Not that's since accurate. the Holy Bible has anybody fooled has around. Fooled with around. So many- uh, yeah. So first of all, just to be very clear to anyone who might get the wrong idea, I am definitely not enlightened. My, my partner is here in the apartment with me. He can verify that uh, very clearly. So. Um, you know, I think there are different, there are different views. And I think the, the, the Dharmic view, well, even the Buddhist view, because that's different from the Hindu view. The Jewish view is a little more like the Hindu view, uh, which is that enlightenment has something to do with going back and forth of, of, to states of union or sub, or sublimity. Um, Judaism is a, health, a householder religion. So that very rarely, almost never were there monastic traditions within Judaism. Mm-hmm. And so their ideal has to have, and there's that whole legal tradition. So the ideal has to have something with being in the world, being more just. But it's it's that um, oscillation of of perspective, seeing the world from the relative uh, perspective of that's our ordinary world, and and from the absolute perspective where everything is God and everything is one, and there's you know it's just the world of non-self where there's not separate things. Um, but it's not a notion of one and done. Like I had a big enough experience, and so now I'm permanently enlightened. Uh, it's much in the Jewish view, at least, it's much more of a kind of back and forth. And that's true in the Theravadan Buddhist world and the Zen Buddhist world also, because it is very rare to really get, it's not one and done. It's like four and done or seven and done. Like there's a new, there's all these maps, how many transformative earth shadowing ego death experiences do you have to have before you're, you finally Mm. hit it. Um, But I think in monastic traditions, they would all say that, that, that works if you're a monk or a nun. Um, you know, there's no way to kind of, you can't have a mortgage and not have suffering. So, or a family or a career, uh, or any of the things which we householders, uh, take for granted, maybe in terms of what it is to live. Um, so I, I think your high bar is probably, um, Warranted. I can recommend to you some self-declared arhats, uh, fully enlightened Buddhist I've folks. I've spoken. I've spoken to some of them, and um, <laughs> the. Uh, I, I mean, what? Uh, maybe I should mention um, some of them now. Uh, well, I guess uh, uh, Kenneth Falk. I, I spoke to on this show. I think, and I think he calls himself enlightened, doesn't he, or does he? 
think he does. I think he's a little more tentative, but he would be one to talk to. Yeah. Because I think I remember him t- saying he was, he was saying, "Yeah, I lost my temper with my wife the other day," and I said, "Well, wait, then you're not enlightened, right?" And I kind of <laughs> meant it. I kind of meant yeah. it, right? I mean, yeah. that's how strict my definition is. Uh, and that's borne out. Look, there's traditional. There's again, staying with Buddhism, the Vasudhimaga, which is the classical Buddhist commentary in this stream of. of Buddhism is very clear. No, there, there should be no passions uh, with the Arhant. And if you've lost your temper, you're doing something wrong. That being said, in, in Vajrayana and Mahayana Buddhism, where there's a different kind of model of enlightenment, uh, there is space for that. There is space for anger and for sadness. There's a famous Zen story about someone whose child dies and he cries and the student at students ask why you're crying. It is in Gate of Tears, actually. And uh, he says, I'm crying because I'm sad. The idea being, if you're fully enlightened, you're fully enlightened, you're just present with what is, and you're sad. Mm -hmm. An unspeakable tragedy happens, you feel sad. So they're different models. So I think your model is a little more uh, Burmese and a little less Japanese. Um, uh, Yeah. Now, there is a a guy I think is very interesting. You know who Gary Weber is, probably. You may may know him. He doesn't say he's enlightened, but... He does describe himself kind of as if he were. I mean, he, you know, he's, he has all the hallmarks according to his own description of what his life is like or has many of the hallmarks. And he came to mind when I was reading, I think it was your essay on, on, on Jewish enlightenment, you know, uh, and, and you were saying in the Jewish tradition, um, you know, it, it is more like, you know, you get back to life and you're not perfect. You you, you got to deal with it. And I think at some point you say, well, you couldn't be, I mean, you couldn't live life if you were always in a state of enlightenment because you just, it was almost as if you wouldn't be able to function. But um, a couple of things, I mean, Gary uh, describes himself as, as in a certain sense functioning better since he lost the sense that he's actually in control of anything and it all just happens. And there's actually a literature on this. I mean, somebody did a study recently that I wrote about in my newsletter, the non-zero newsletter, which by the way, people can subscribe to by going to nonzero.org. But it was a study where a number of people who, you know, could plausibly claim to be enlightened and people in their spiritual communities kind of attested to the plausibility that said the same thing. They lost, uh, they lost the sense that they were making decisions. They lost the, you know, uh, but they, they, a lot of them were in very demanding vocations, performing very well. Um, so there are, there are people who seem to stay in a state that's very different from mine. I mean, Gary professes to have very few self-regarding thoughts, thoughts about himself. Um, but they get by, I mean, very well, you know. Yeah, I think there's all kinds. First, I, I want to—I'd like to validate these exper- these self-described experiences of enlightenment. I think there's a tendency that a lot of us have to sort of put it as a totally impossible. And um, you know, I, I don't think it's totally impossible. I, I take these folks at their word. Um, you know, Jeff Foster, who teaches the, the a non-dual uh, tradition, is another person, young person, youngish person who comes to mind. I was hanging out with Byron Katie recently. Hmm. You know, Katie's a little bit different because she is a little. She and Eckhart Tolle is another one like Katie, who are a little bit like. They all have people around them, <laughs> you know. Meaning. So Katie has Katie has her husband who like deals with a lot of the logistics, and she's really kind of in the zone a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's all the time, but it's definitely a lot of the time in, in a way that would make, uh, you know, the sort of mundane stuff, catching flights and you know making hotel reservations a, a little bit more difficult. Um, and yet 
you know, certainly I get that sense from her of, of settledness and, and love and, uh, truth and awareness, all of the hallmarks to me of a, of an awakened being. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I tend to, I, I wouldn't say I take people at their word that maybe is giving it too much credit, but I would say that it, I've having met several of these kind of very realized beings along the way, uh, it does seem like something that happens and it has not happened for me. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe I mean, a little bit of the way like i definitely there's well, no question that i'm well yeah i mean it, yeah. i have a sense for it because i've like been like particularly you know probably on retreat where things were flowing very readily and and i could see there was a correlation uh between uh you know how easily things were coming and and how easy functioning kind of was mm-hmm. and how clear i felt uh, and, and how little I was obsessed with myself and so on that I see the correlation. I just haven't spent very much time at the deep end of that pool of correlations. Yeah. You know, though, even then, I mean, you had that experience on retreat and then you get to the salad bar and somebody took all of the olives and you they, know, they and must, that, they have to be punished when that and happens. And now you're yes. pissed, you know, yeah. like, and, and I think, and then God forbid you get a, a phone message from home that you actually have to deal with something in the real world and your, yeah. your yogi mind can barely handle it. So uh, yes, yeah, so those are beautiful. And I've had that experience many, many times and they're lovely, but even that I, you know, those things pass. Those are conditioned. I well, think yeah, for me, that's the problem. what was appealing about the, this intuitive knowledge of the four noble truths is like the notion that the, the brain can actually change. The, mm-hmm. this, we don't know if it's the hardware or the software or if that's even the right metaphor, but something changes in the mind, um, in a way that's lasting. And I've experienced a little bit of that, a, a portion of it. And, um, so it, it seems having experienced a, a little bit of it, it, it seems plausible that others would have experienced a lot of it. And how close have you had to, uh, well, let's say without, well, I guess DMT kind of, uh, answers the question I was going to say to a not self experience, uh, or, or pure non-dual experience, but say, say but those on, are the not, those are the dual ones. You know, when you're visiting the machine elves and the cosmic matrix, it is actually still somewhat, it's not, it's relational. That's well, what's yeah, so interesting. But, I but I thought that one kind of DMT, MEO3 oh, yeah, or five, yeah, well, five MEO, MEO, whatever, is kind of the exception to the DMT rule. Yeah, it's a tryptamine that provides the unit of uh, experience. That's true. Anyway, uh, do you want to say anything about non-dual experiences you've had generally, <laughs> especially on, on meditation retreats, I guess, or, or on while meditating? Or, I mean, I, I think – so I, I one thing that I – talked about a lot back in when I wrote non-dual Judaism and it's a little bit in the book also in the new book enlightenment by trial and error also is is that every experience in a way is a non-dual experience so you know we I've had many unitive experiences where the boundaries of the self are lower mm-hmm. um but is this Ramdas or someone else who that is enlightenment is isn't really about a special uh wave it's the the wetness of all waves um hmm. you know that there is that to me feels like that feels right to me in a certain way, especially if there is a kind of panentheistic or non-dual view. That would mean that every moment is a moment of that's susceptible to wonder or any other kind of consciousness mm-hmm. um, or right seeing or wrong seeing. So it strikes me as that being – so the unit of experiences do feel like they show the mind a different way of considering itself uh, with different boundaries. Um that seems to be more accurate based on what we know from science about what consciousness is or isn't. 
about how separate the self is or isn't what the self really is. Is there really a little homunculus inside of our brain that's, that goes up to heaven when we die? Uh, or, or is it different? Is, is this kind of consciousness actually sort of an illusion that, um, the ego that we're, you know, that we're telling ourselves. So it, it seems to correlate with something that the rational mind also understands. Um, and then do you come out more of a schmuck or less of a schmuck? Um, that's been sort of the proof in the pudding for me, uh, especially now, you know, what it's fun revisiting these early mystical experiences from 18 years ago, you know, now I'm changing diapers most days, you know, so life has shifted and the arena of practice has shifted. And so what seems to stick is actually back to the mundane stuff, being at the mm-hmm. deep end and now coming back to, to the so-called shallow end where it's just, is this, is this comment something I say or don't say? Uh, is this feeling something I can exist with or not exist with? And if I can't exist with this feeling, does that mean I push it out onto someone else? Mm-hmm. You know, basic Dharma 101. And um, yeah. that feels fine. I, I don't I don't want to say that that's more valuable than the deep end of the pool, but it, it's certainly the well, part I, of the pool. Where I, I think one connection is that kind of tools you learn to l- use like while on retreat, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. In daily life, the key becomes just remembering to use them, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and you, but you wouldn't be able to do, at least I wouldn't uh, be able to do that if I hadn't spent, you know, time really focused on the, on the practice in a deeper way than everyday life permits. That sounds right to me. And, and I think the peak experiences part, one of the values of it is that it powers along your practice. It, it gives you the yeah. confidence to sit there and to do the work. And it's not gritting your teeth and sitting there because you're sitting there, but also aware of all of this love that's flowing around. Sometimes it's bliss. Sometimes it's love. Sometimes it's just equanimity. Um, sometimes it's just really, you know, equanimity is just really clear seeing. I mean, you just see something so clearly. There's a beauty that's beyond beauty in that. Like mm-hmm. it's just so beautiful to just see clearly and be on balance, not be shaking around and not be grabbing on. You know, anytime there's a bliss experience, there's likely to be like a little bit of grabbing on because it's a bliss experience. Mm-hmm. And when that goes away and it's just equanimity, there's something even more beautiful than bliss about that, that it's just, yeah. just quiet. Yeah. Um, yeah, I had this experience once. Oh, well, never mind. The, uh, let's get back to, let's get back to, let's get back to Jewish mysticism. I'm sure um, the listeners and viewers want that sentence to be finished. I, I doubt they would if they heard it. Well, of course, then they'd have heard it, and they naturally would They maybe heard it on previous episodes, but uh, haven't. they haven't. This is actually something I thought about putting in my book, but I didn't. But it's not. It's not like it's just not that interesting. Um, is why I didn't put it in the book. The um, so, uh, but Jewish mysticism. We alluded to this. Um, you, you, uh, you, you know, one thing I didn't realize. It gets back to this question of whether a, a mystical experience has to be unitive or can be something else. I didn't realize that the guy who wrote what some would consider the classic text on Jewish mysticism is, is Sholem. Is it Gershom Sholem? Gershom Sholem, yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that he said that, that Jewish mysticism isn't unitive, right? There, there's apparently controversy about this, but that was his view. Yeah, I think the controversy is resolved that most of it's not and some of it is. Uh-huh. <laughs> he Sholem seemed to be on a bit of a crusade to differentiate Jewish mysticism from others. And that seemed to be part of his commitment to kind of how he understood Judaism uh, as being much more of an internal system rather than one that 
it obviously was in dialogue with Sufism and mystical Christianity and, and other streams as well. Um, there are unitive texts that are his, his kind of successor, I guess, uh, uh, Moshe Idel, a preeminent Kabbalah scholar and one of my teachers of, of, of today, um, uh, you know, has brought many texts that are completely unitive in, in phenomenology and the way they describe the experience. But it's also true that a lot are not. And, um, I just remember in college, I remember, you know, this sort of, it, it was more of a controversy like, oh, is Jewish mysticism not as good as other mm-hmm. mysticisms because it's not unitive? And, but then if you look, you know, there's, there's sort of, if, if you were to flatten the Christian mystical tradition to just say, well, the best experiences are the ones that are purely unitive. But if you're still having the Virgin Mary or somebody appear in a vision, that's not as good. That's not how the traditions understand themselves. And it also seems a little disrespectful, but it also doesn't seem accurate or honest as a scholar to have that kind of, really it's a theological agenda uh, of, of ranking mysticism. Yeah. And certainly a lot of the so-called Christian mystics, um, I don't mean so-called in a dismissive way, but I mean a lot of the people who call Christian mystics do not sound mystical in a very Eastern sense. Right. And that's, and I think now, again, you know, the, we're, we're many decades on from the sort of naive comparative project of the, let's say, 50s and 60s. Um, I think now there's an understanding that mysticism takes a lot of different shapes and, and, and forms. And it just so happens that the psychedelics that were in use at the time and in the 60s do produce a certain kind of unitive experience. And so lots and lots and lots of people, including lots of scholars, had that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, there's one book, I won't mention the name of the book or the author because I'm about to savage it, but it was this kind of tragic, this guy had a peak experience that was unitive in nature. And then he traipsed around meeting all of these very wise mystical teachers, spiritual teachers, contemplative teachers, basically asking like, you know, to validate his experience. Like, is this experience in your tradition? And then if it wasn't, he would like set that aside <laughs> and like keep looking for, you know, the tradition that had the experience that he had had. And this is a, a classic research method that's been used in many disciplines. <laughs> exactly. So uh, that's, I think, you know, that's, that's a real book, but that's also the kind of straw man. It's the actual straw man uh, of what we don't want. Uh, what we want is a sort of robust appreciation of the similarities and differences. Uh, yeah. And of course, then you can wind up arguing if you want about whether we even should be using one word to describe these things. You know, is right. there such yeah. diversity that we shouldn't? So there's uh, a, there's a scholar named Boas who excuse me for saying, who has written an article called There is No Such Thing as Jewish Mysticism, uh, making exactly that point. We're importing this term mysticism from another, from other traditions. It doesn't apply to Kabbalah and to other mm-hmm. mystical and esoteric writing. And, uh, we would much be, we'd be better off without it. It's not my view, but it's an articulate view. So speaking of Kabbalah, and I'm still a little unclear on the pronunciation for starters. I think you've pronounced it in two different ways in the course of this conversation, unless I'm mistaken. I probably have. What, yeah, what it, so what, this boils down here. We'll do we'll do it the real way. I'll explain. Um, in Ashkenazic, so most American Jews are of Ashkenazic descent, Eastern European descent, mm-hmm. and the the pronunciations of Hebrew words became kind of Europeanized. So not so Kabbalah is the way you'd say it in Hebrew, okay. but Kabbalah is how you would say it in Yiddish and thus, thus then ah. in Ashkenazi influenced English. So that's also true. So in Hebrew, the Sabbath is the Shabbat. So Shabbat. 
But if you were in a Hasidic community, nobody says Shabbat. They say Shabbos, which notice they, it shifts both. It shifts the T sound to an mm. S and it shifts the syllable emphasis to the first mm. syllable. And it sounds more like German. It sounds more like, you know, the, the languages that they were, that Yiddish was influenced by, uh, Shabbos. So good Shabbos instead of Shabbat Shalom, which is Hebrew, it's a good Shabbos, um, which is a mixture of Yiddish and Hebrew. So there's okay. the full explanation. Now, as for, Kabbalah itself. Um, the, the, uh, so help me understand this because, you know, I, I've had the experience probably of some other people of you here that, okay, this is the Jewish version of mysticism and you go in expecting to see something familiar and pretty soon it's these people decoding the text and it sounds like numerology and they're saying like, well, this letter stands for this and the secret message encoded in this text is this, right? And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that doesn't remind me of Buddhism. So what is what is the deal here? <laughs> it's funny because actually there's a lot of Buddhist commentaries that do exactly that, okay. right? So like a I lot of Mahayana – well, because the Mahayana especially, like they have to understand these earlier texts which didn't have Mahayana ideas in them as having Mahayana ideas in them. So they actually do the same thing. And the, the Kabbalists did the same thing in the 13th you century. You mean literal, it's literally a question of encryption as opposed to, say, Sometimes, an, an allegorical it, interpretation of, of early texts? It's all of the above. So there's the mm-hmm. Mahayana Sutras, which are a whole new literature, right, that, that that were discovered but were said to be from the original time. And then, yeah, interpretations of, of words or phrases or gestures, sometimes allegory. Yeah, sometimes it's the New Testament reading the Old Testament. Um, and, uh, some, yeah, so all of those are present. Uh, when I tend to amass for definition of Kabbalah, I'll, I'll call it the Jewish mystical and esoteric tradition, mm-hmm. uh, because a lot of, as you pointed out, a lot of what happens is textual interpretation. Uh, the best book for listeners on this, on the distinctiveness of Kabbalistic mystical experience is a book by a scholar named Malila Helner Eshet. And uh, the title is A River Flows from Eden. And I think the subtitle is Mystical Experience in the Zohar. The Zohar is the masterpiece of Kabbalah. Mm-hmm. Because it's true. While you can find some traditional kind of mystical experiences in the Zohar, the overwhelming majority, 99%, is more like what you just described. Like here's the symbolism of this verse of text. And and here's this and here's that. And Malila shows, I think, really convincingly, it's a masterpiece. She really shows how that is the experience. Uh, it's, it's sort of a textual mysticism. And I've had that. Now, wait, when you say that is the experience, you mean? So in the Zohar, there are a lot of – so like is the experience that we're looking for in the Zohar when some of the rabbis say like uh, his face was filled with light and everything was illuminated? Like that looks like a traditional some kind of supernatural experience. And sure, that's one. But also the experience is being in the flow, the symbolic flow, uh, where it's almost like a jazz jam session. And, you know, one, one figure will say this and one figure will say that. Probably, we don't know this for sure, but the Zohar, which is most of it is structured as a, a conversation among different Talmudic rabbis, certainly not from the Talmudic period. It may be recreating actual conversations that happen among the circle of mystics uh, in Spain in the, in the 13th century and kind of yeah, it may be that. And I've been a few times, not many times, in Zoharic circles like that where that happens. And if you know enough of the material, the symbolic structure becomes primary in your mind and the sort of surface level of reality becomes really secondary. Um, so the, the associations of different aspects of the spherot, these man, uh, emanations of the divine with different colors or different words or different moods or different symbols or literary figures, biblical figures and, and, and myth, that actually does kind of, you really do get in the flow. 
uh, of that. And uh, I've described it. That's a pretty unsophisticated description. Malila's book really discuss it much more in detail. So no, but that's right. If you go into, if you just open a random, I could pick one off the shelf, a random book of Kabbalah or Kabbalah uh, and look for 20th century and 21st century, you'll see more traditional mystical experience because it's delivering what the audience expects, Mm -hmm. but the authentic, the medieval material doesn't conform to that. Um, And then the earlier strata of Jewish mysticism, uh, what are called Hechalot and Merkava. So Hechalot means palaces and Merkava means chariots, which are these, as I mentioned, uh, seems a while ago, uh, second to eighth century or ninth century texts about visions of the heavens. Mm -hmm. Um, Like like some of the Christian mystics. Exactly. And same place, same time. So there's, it's not a unit of experience. It's an ascent of the soul that then goes and visits heaven or the heavenly realms. Even that's mediated a lot by language, interestingly, in the Jewish tradition. Um, and that's, you know, circling back to, to my little book, uh, it was just shocking. I hadn't expected to ever in my life have an experience that seemed like that. Um, cause I don't have that theology or cosmology that there's mm-hmm. a place called heaven and that there are angels and stuff, but, but I have seen it. <laughs> so I don't have, it's not in my, cause it's not in my worldview, but I have been there. Uh, so, and, and, um, yeah, so it, but it is true that if, if, you know, it's tricky because now I think if you just Google Kabbalah, I assume the first thing anyone would find would be the Kabbalah Center, which is a, a recent phenomenon that kind of mixes new age stuff, new, new thought. The that's, idea that that's you can Madonna's, reality. that's Madonna's thing. Her, uh, her former thing, but yeah, her thing. Oh, she's, she's no longer and into that. As far as I know. And, you know, there's a lot of money floating around and, and it's, 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 it's a funny thing. It felt like, Kabbalah was becoming more, a little more mainstream about 20 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And then came the Kabbalah Center, and now it's hidden once again. It's mm. just hidden behind something claiming to be Kabbalah that's actually very different. Um, so the esoteric tradition <laughs> remains esoteric. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, so at the beginning of this, I, I quoted this line where you said, I feel relatively settled on how I relate to these still fundamental questions of love, God, and the contemplative path. I said we'd we'd hold off until the end until to wait for for you to tell us what you meant by that. I, I think you've told us a certain amount of what you meant by that in the course of the conversation. But before we go, what else would you like to say about kind of where you've wound up? And also feel free to revisit any highlights along the way that that you wish I had asked you about. Yeah, I think. You know, especially in part two of the book, there's a lot of angst and wrestling with mm-hmm. the losing my religion part. Uh, I feel very little to none of that now. Um, the Jewish religious practices that I, that I still do, I actually really like. They're mostly family practices, lighting candles with my daughter and, you know, celebrating Shabbat in a nice way, a, a form of keeping kosher still. But, um, you know, it's really, I was, in addition to being a professional LGBT activist for 10 years, I was also a professional Jew for a number of years in my career. <laughs> how, how does, well, what's, uh, the, what's the nine to five of that like? I, I got to tell you, it's a lot better being a professional Buddhist, which is what I am now. <laughs> uh, much, 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 much better. There is, you know, there is, it's only a supporting theme in the book, but in my life, the sort of tightness around Israel-Palestine and around Jewish politics and stuff was so intense during those periods. And it's still very intense. I'm just not really part of it. Um, so I've, it, it has sort of settled into 
I love the Jewish teaching that I occasionally do. Uh, the sort of, I call it like the boutique Judaisms that I'm part of, whether it's Jewish meditation or the social justice Jewish community, which is lovely. Um, you know, for a long time, my sense of what really is valuable from a contemplative perspective has been Dharmic more than being Jewish. So the Jewish parts are these sort of devotional, folkloric, communal, um, linguistic, symbolic, culinary aspects. Um, it feels like the real question animating our moment is, is how do we get people to be a little less brutal? Um, you know, we're, I think it's so funny, you know, you and I, I think we had our last talk three years ago, right after the Trump election. Yeah, you thought I was a little hard on you, as I recall. Uh, it's, I, I, I've forgotten that. <laughs> so, well, well, no, what it was, I was kind of, you had written, uh, I would say a bit angrily about Trump. And I was, uh, what I was challenging you oh, well, on got was the like, better of that conversation three years on. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh no, it's not that it's not that. Right. Uh, <laughs> oh no, but it wasn't about that. My question was, uh, is that a very, I mean, this is a whole, a whole nother conversation, but, um, I, I remember the, we were talking about like, is that Dharmic? You know, yeah, is, is, that, is, that is that a very wholesome? Dharmic way? It, the yeah. question wasn't to what extent does this man need combating? The question was, is this a very Buddhist form of combat? Right, right, right. So not to get on that conversation again, right. but it, it feels to me though, with the, the, the global resurgence of nativism and nationalism, mm-hmm. um, that that's the fundamental question. You know, we are human animals are, we're, we're familial, tribal, communal. Uh, we have a lot of oxytocin needs, which are, you know, the hormone of belonging and also of love. And so the fundamental question of like, is there any hope for our species <laughs> seems to be one that's more addressed by Dharmic, uh, technologies of the self, mm-hmm. um, ways to be less reactive, ways to be a little, a little kinder, um, 10% kinder you could you could say and and so i don't know that for i don't know that i i'm looking in a jewish space for any of those kind of answers but it's not the rejection or the or the struggle that's really in part two of the book a lot is not something that's live for me now uh the way it was still plenty of you know angry facebook posts or you know maybe but but not nothing more than that it's not it's not on a soul level and uh it's it's you know, I made a choice a few years ago with my partner to to enter this new phase of life in which the idea of going on meditation retreat seems like an unattainable luxury, at least mm-hmm. for the next couple of years. Um, and, and so the arena of practice has shifted. But that's what, you know, when I went back to this book, I mean, that, it was so, it was just really sweet. I mean, all the adjectives that come to mind are very like, it was soft, it was sweet, it was lovely, it was delicious to come back to that sense of this person who is a seeker and hmm. and looking and looking with this rigorous doubting eye uh that still wanted to like the x-files i want to believe that that still wanted those experiences but also was not willing to sacrifice integrity or what i thought was truthfulness at the time and um that i i really am actually happy to share that with the world and have it out there. I, I don't think this is my third in a series of three books that I don't think a lot of people are going to buy and read necessarily. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, and, and, but some people are going to love it, I think. And that makes me feel really gratified that that just feels really connected for me. Um, I would say uh, this could, this could command a larger audience than I think you give it credit for. 
from your mouth to God's ears. Yeah. <laughs> as we say. As you say. In agnostic. Yeah. 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 Three months. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, um, well, anyway, it's, it's out now or will be by the time we post this, right? Uh, yeah. If I wait, it is out if on, I wait uh, two days or what do I <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it will be out. I guarantee people it will be out by the time they hear this. Uh, yep, Enlightenment by Trial and Error. Yeah. Easy, easy title to remember. Ten Years on the Slippery Slope of Jewish Spirituality, Postmodern Buddhism, and Other Heresies. I didn't have time to ask you uh, what postmodern Buddhism is, but if people want to know the answer to that, they will just have to buy the book. <laughs> and uh, Or continue listening to you. And where else can people uh, find you? Uh, I am teaching this Buddhist Jewish meditation retreat in Connecticut uh, at uh, the end of December, and I love that container. It's a very sweet container for people to do pretty difficult, you know, contemplative mm-hmm. work. You can find out more about that on my website, jmichelson.net. And you must be on Instagram. You referred to that. I am actually. I am. Uh, and you're and on Twitter, but I, I'm not sure. If, are you very active on Twitter these days? My my Twitter presence is more the political side and legal side of my work. Nothing uh, wrong with that. What's your Twitter so handle? Is there's it, more. It's at J. Michelson. I posted okay. today my article about the Supreme Court case today, which was another challenging. Looks like it will be another challenging Supreme Court case. Uh, and. Uh, yeah, I'm still working on the integration of those two careers uh, as I was three years ago um, after the apocalypse in November 2016. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm afraid the apocalypse is yet to come, although uh, November 2016 increased the, the chances of it happening in our lifetime. Um, so, uh, yeah, and I'm at Robert Ryder on Twitter, W-R-I-G-H-T-E-R. So thank you, Jay Michelson. Good luck with the book. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to connect with you and, and connect with the audience as well. Really My pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Take care. All right. Thank you.